Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Mona Charon, sitting in for Charlie Sykes today. I am a syndicated columnist and the policy editor at The Bulwark, and we are delighted to welcome as our guest today, the great Peter Weiner, who is a uh, commentator for The Atlantic and The New York Times and other outlets. Pete, thanks so much for being here for a little end of year reflecting. It's great to be with you, Mona. Thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for all the work that you're doing and the uh, voice of uh, moral clarity you've been over the years. Thank you. Right back at you. Well, so um, Christmas is a very um, special time of year for you as a as an observant Christian, Peter, and um, you know, it's I'm I'm Jewish, so I don't celebrate the religious holiday of Christmas, but I have always appreciated the spirit of the season, the fact that uh, at this time of year, expressions like goodwill to men, peace on earth are on everyone's lips, or they used to be. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, an, it's emblematic, I guess, of the time we are living in that even this period is now soiled by partisanship and the just squalid ugliness that has come to dominate American culture. And of course, I am talking about the episode where President and Mrs. Biden were chatting with families to wish them Merry Christmas and to exchange pleasantries. And some guy named Jared Schmeck and uh, if his name sounds very familiar to speakers of Yiddish, uh, it should, in any event, uh, decided that in the midst of this very pleasant call where they traded well wishes about their children and grandchildren, this fellow apparently has four children, let's just, let's just play a clip of the nice part of this exchange with this American citizen. That's great. Well, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful that you have a two-year-old. Well, well, have a Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful Christmas. And by the way, you guys have to be in bed by Thank nine you. o'clock, you know, and asleep between okay. nine and 12 or he doesn't show up. This isn't to you, Jared. This is to the kids. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I hope you have a wonderful hey, Christmas. Well. Right. Okay. And after that, any normal human, Pete, would respond with well wishes of their own. And uh, of course, we know what happened later. It was this. Yeah, I hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas as well. Uh, Merry Christmas you. and let's go, Brandon. Okay. So, um, Pete, um, I, I try to remain cheerful. I try to keep my spirits up, but this one is pretty tough. Yeah, I, I agree, Mona. I mean, I, I think you put your finger on it. Um, it. It's tough, I think, because it is uh, symbolic. It represents some larger phenomenon that's that's happening in, in American politics and American um, culture, which is there, there's both a kind of adolescent childishness to it um, and a stupidity. Mm -hmm. um, to it, using this sort of code word uh, for your blank Joe Biden is is, mm -hmm. is, is what it's become known uh, among uh, people on the on the American right, and it's pretty promiscuous right now. It's something that's used in a lot of different places, and 
the fact that it would invade and pervade uh, Christmas, I, I suppose it's symbolic of the way for some people in American life, politics is invading everything, that there's no, uh, you know, dis, um, disaggregation of issues, that politics stays with politics and the rest of life is the rest of life. And they don't have to intrude, certainly the, the partisanship and the, and the hate and the anger. Uh, but those walls seem to have come down, and they seem to have come down primarily on on the um, on the American um, right. Uh, the other thing is that that um, Mr. Schmeck, it, it was a a weird sort of exchange because at one point when he was interviewed about this, he said, "Well, I meant no disrespect uh, to to uh, <laughs> to Joe Biden." Um, and then he went on to say, "You know, he's a free thinking, independent person. He's a follower of Jesus Christ." So he he pulled that in, uh, which, yeah. which as, as a person of the Christian faith is is of course problematic as well. And then uh, he was celebrated on the American right. Steve Bannon had his had him on uh, his show, and that too was a phenomenon. Which these kind of uh, people who do these sort of clownish or insulting, degrading things become stars in the the media culture. So it it is representative of something that's discouraging and troubling uh, in American politics right now, and it's um, it's worth calling out. You know, uh, you, you're so right about him becoming a celebrity now. So you know, l- look at the people that the right elevates. I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse is a great right wing hero now for having killed two people and wounded a third irresponsibly, you know, whatever you may um, think about uh, the jury verdict, which actually, in my opinion, was the only uh, correct verdict under the circumstances. Uh, He wasn't a, a first degree murderer, but he was highly irresponsible. He had no business being there. And for the right to elevate him into hero status is just a, also a symbol of what has gone wrong. And and here you have somebody who is just a jackass, somebody who is crude and rude and speaking to the president of the United States in the worst fashion. By the way, David French mentioned this. At college football games across the South, he says, uh, it has been standard to hear chants of F Joe Biden. You know, that is just unbelievable. When you think about all of the people in authority who have had to let this happen and turn a blind eye, it gives you a sense of this just unbelievable corruption that has creeped into into American culture and American life. And, you know, I, I want to be happy and I want to be optimistic about the future of the country, but... Um, but it's it's honestly it's just very difficult when when these things are happening. But the, can, can you just talk for a minute because you had this great piece uh, in the Atlantic about Trump Jr. So and it ties in with what we were just saying because this Jared Schmeck claims he's a follower of Jesus, and that for you must just it must grind your gears, right? <laughs> to have someone like that then claim that they are a follower of Jesus. And it's similar to what Donald Trump Jr. told a recent conservative gathering, right? That uh, what have we ever gotten out of turning the other cheek, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's right. It's interesting on, the, on Donald Trump Jr., who to me is a largely uninteresting figure, and I haven't really written about him much over the last Five years, other than when his actions intersected with the, the broader corruption of the uh, of the uh, Trump campaign and the Trump presidency, like when when they, um, you know, he, he he was very eager to meet with 
uh, to try and get dirt from the Russians on Hillary Clinton at Trump Tower during the 2016 campaign. But other than that, I, I haven't spent much time. But I uh, I did write on him in the, uh, for the Atlantic um, earlier this week because I was struck by a couple of things. One is exactly what you mentioned, which is during that speech. And it's an extraordinary speech in a certain way to listen to. It was to Turning Point USA. It's about a 40-minute speech. It's it's difficult to get through, but but important in some respects because it represents a certain mindset. And one of the things that he said during that speech, and it was really a remarks aimed at vengeance, at owning the libs, at expressing all the grievances and resentments that he has personally and that the movement that he represents, the MAGA movement that he represents has. And then at one point he said, uh, look, I know this teaching, sort of familiar with it about turning the other cheek, but it's gotten us nothing. It's gotten us nothing. And that struck me as a person of the Christian faith primarily, but 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 not simply because of that, which is how he how he viewed you know one of the teachings of Jesus, which is as a mere instrumentality. That the and it, this goes to the larger, I would say, Trump ethic, mm-hmm. uh, which which we've seen, which is that the ends justify the means, and that the the main point uh, of people's lives in politics right now is vengeance, is score settling, is destroying them before they destroy us. And I should say as well that within that speech, uh, Donald Trump Jr. led the crowd in a Let's Go Brandon chant. And he was absolutely (sighs) delighted when he did it. And he referred to that phrase as arguably uh, the most important sort of social phenomenon of the last 50 years. So that tells you something. And I know that there are people, friends of mine, uh, Republicans who, who argue, can't you just let this go? Why do you have to focus on on Trump? And my answer to that is I was happy. In fact, I, I hoped, I wrote about it, to have put him in the rearview mirror after the election in November 2016. I was sick of writing um, about him uh, and and happy to to move on to politics as traditionally understood. But the problem is that we are seeing something that I think both you and I worried about and and warned about, which is the the, the, the Trumpification of the, the the GOP and the base of the Republican Party, and that movement exists, and it's not going away. Um, they're playing for keeps, and I think what we've seen over the last five years is the people who believe that you could look the other way uh, during Trump's moral and ethical transgressions. And just hope that he would disappear, either that he got the nomination and wouldn't win the presidency, or then when he won the presidency, once he was defeated, uh, the Republican Party would snap back. And I wish that were the case, but I think clearly it's not the case. Um, And you don't do this country any favors. You don't do conservatism any favors. You don't do moral decency any favors when you ignore this stuff. This is real, and it's energizing to the American right. And they are aggressive and they're determined. And we have to recognize that and we have to respond. We don't need to respond in the same manner we do. But it's going to require you know, some degree of moral fortitude, I would say, um, and even political courage among Republicans to try and right the ship. People often ask me, and maybe they ask you, they'll say, okay, you know, I, I get that you're upset with the drift of the American right. But you used to be so good about calling out the left. Why don't you do that again? Why are you ignoring the transgressions of the left? And they go on and on. And so uh, my I, I'd be curious to hear what you say. Here's what I say. I say, first of all, I do talk about the transgressions of the left. 
And I, I do call out things that I think are outrageous, as I've done on our podcast many times, you know, the kind of excesses of wokeness. For example, a woman who had to withdraw, felt constrained to withdraw a book she had written because she was white and she was trying to enter the mind and heart of a Hispanic girl. And this was considered a grievous offense and so forth. I do comment on those things, but my critics are not wrong that I focus more on the right now. And, and here's why. Things that the left does are incredibly irritating and sometimes borderline dangerous in the sense that they want to shut down this free exchange of views on campuses and some other places where they have power. But they are not attempting, at the moment, they are not attempting to shut down American democracy. And that is the goal of the right. It's a very immediate very urgent goal of theirs. And therefore, I just think the urgency is about addressing the threat from the right more than the left. Do you agree with that or do you have any comment on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a fair question to be asked. I've been asked it any, any, uh, any number of, um, of times. And yeah, I, let, me, let me tell you how, how I think about it. Um, and it dovetails very much with what, with, with what, you, uh, with what you say. Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that when there are transgressions that Democrats do, uh, I'll happily call them out. I, I did a very tough piece on, on Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, which mm-hmm. I thought was, was, a, was a horrible act for any number of reasons. And in any interview that I, I do, if somebody asks me about the transgressions of, of, of the left from the so-called wokeness and the deep illiberalism that we, you know, we used to be confined in college campuses, but it's, it's really spread, including mm-hmm. within journalism. So I'm happy to speak to, uh, to those things. Um, but I, I think that the people who ask that question and I, and I think you have just a different threat assessment uh, of the situation. And mine is very much like yours. I think right now, and I, I'm actually going to have a piece, co-author a piece in the next week or two on this, on this very topic, which is to do an assessment of it's what I refer to as a kind of pincer movement against liberal democracy from the left and the right, in which I and the person I'm writing with are going to document the, 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 uh, the threats from the left and the right. But our conclusion is that the threat from the right is more immediate, is more urgent, as, as you said, for the reasons that you said. Um, we have just witnessed uh, in the last year uh, an organized effort uh, to uh, overthrow a f- free um, a- and fair election and the spreading of an extraordinary conspiracy theory and an effort to try and reinterpret an insurrection attempt, a violent attack on the Capitol that's almost without precedent in, in our country. And you just can't look the other way at those things. That's part of it. Honestly, Mona, I think there's something else probably emotionally when I think about this as well, mm-hmm. which is I'm a person who's been a lifelong conservative. And I've been a Republican for my entire life prior to 2016 and Donald Trump. I served in three Republican administrations. And I'm certain that there's some kind of, you know, pain and disappointment with the with a movement that I had associated myself with and a party I had associated myself being, you know, the uh, on the cutting edge of this anti-democratic effort. And so I'm sure that that's part of it too, some sense of... These are people and movements and parties that, that I've been a part of, and this is what it's turned into. And there's probably some sense that, of feeling that I have an obligation, maybe more of an obligation than others, to speak out against that. And the last thing I would say is that this 
threat, if it's going to be uh, averted uh, and mitigated, has to come at least in part from the right. Uh, There have to be Republicans and conservatives who stand up and say, this is really wrong. And they have to give voice to that. And then they have to try and translate that into, uh, into action. And the problem is that many, many people, as you know, and written about uh, eloquently, Republicans, people on the right, went sort of voce. They, they, privately, they would agree with the assessment you and I have. It's just that publicly, for a variety of reasons, they won't say anything. Uh, and I think it's important for, for people to, um, to, to speak out, particularly those who are, who are conservative. So it's a fair question uh, to ask, uh, but I think the people who ask that or who are troubled when I focus on 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 the uh, you know those those moral transgressions on the on the right, and when you do it, they view the as I say the threat assessment is is, is probably different. Exactly. Yeah, I want to explore with you a little further this whole concept of fighting back because you hear this all the time on the right. There's always this language that they are just fighting back against the threat from the left. The left wants to kill you. They want to destroy you. And this is a life or death battle. And we are merely on the defensive here. We are the ones who are on the defensive. And it's striking to me that most of the people on the right were incredibly um, agitated 20 years ago about the threat from radical Islam. And, um, and, I was one of them. I was quite worried about the threat of radical Islam, although I wasn't an extremist about it, but I was worried about it. But there were certain parallels that I cannot help noticing. A lot of the countries that were most prone to radicalization were suffused with disinformation and misinformation of various kinds. Conspiracy theories were rampant and widely believed. There was also that same sense of being victimized, of that Muslims were under attack all over the world. If you looked at the videos that Al-Qaeda circulated in order to get followers, their their sort of self-radicalization videos always depicted Muslims as being under assault from various malign forces. And they always presented themselves as just fighting back. And it's just, I'm struck that people who can justify anything, I mean, the attack on the Capitol, attempting to subvert democracy, being crude and disgusting to the president of the United States, leading chants of F. Joe Biden at, at college football games, these people are telling themselves, we're just we're the innocent victims here. We're just fighting back. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, elegant description of of what's going on, very concise description of what's going on. I mean, I've noticed it too. There is a kind of mindset on the American right uh, today, uh, which is quite striking. And it's not just a fear-based mindset, but it's a sense that they are engaged in an existential struggle, just as you said. Mm-hmm. It's the notion that that believes that you know we're two minutes from midnight, and that the left wants to destroy us. They're on the verge of destroying us, uh, destroying our country, destroying our children, destroying us, and everything almost that we have known and loved. Um, and that is that's the frame that that they have. And once you adopt that frame, there is almost nothing that you won't do um, to 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 fight back. Any means that you won't use because you think this is for 
survival, not just your own survival, but the survival of what is good uh, and right in the, in the world. And that can lead people to all sorts of very, very dangerous places. And that's, I think, what we're, what we're seeing. It is a rationalization. Um, there are threats to the left. There have been, you know, for, 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 I mean, that's the nature of life in this broken world. There are always threats. And, in, and the United States has faced threats since its inception. And you and I uh, were alive during the Cold War, and there was a th- mm-hmm. there was a, a, a threat there. Uh, you know, I think you and I would say that the, the people on the left didn't perceive the nature of the struggle with with communism mm-hmm. um, in the in the proper way. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, there there are threats today in terms of the illiberalism on on the progressive side of of things. But that's a very different thing than saying this is an unprecedented situation unlike anything we've seen and that we're in on the edge of the abyss. I just don't believe it. And I'm not sure in, in some senses that they really believe it, or at least that if, if you gave them sodium pentothal and were to, to cut through all of the rationalizations that they would say that that was the nature of the struggle, but that's the predicate that they have to establish in order to justify what they do. Another thing I'd say, Mona, is, um, I have probably learned more about American politics over the last decade in talking to psychologists, moral psychologists, clinical psychologists, and from the field of psychology than I have from talking to political scientists or reading political surveys, Um, much more than I ever imagined. And I think this is particularly true in this era that we're in. I think human psychology explains an enormous amount of what's going on. And if we don't understand that aspect of of human behavior, human psychology, so much of what's happening just can't be uh, parsed. It it, it can't be be understood. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of grievances and resentments, some of which are understandable, many of which are overstated um, on the American right that have been building for years and years. And it's just spilled over. And, and I think what happened is that created the conditions that allowed Donald Trump to win the nomination um, and then win the presidency. So those currents were already in motion. But when Trump won and became president, first leader of the party and then president, that put us in an entirely different category. And it kind of ratified those grievances and resentments and pushed them further. And then you had somebody without any moral bearing at all, a kind of Nietzschean will to power ethic. And it turned out that a lot of people on the right got a psychic satisfaction out of that. There was a sense, you know, the way I explained it even during the 2016 campaign and conversations with people who were Trump supporters was, you know, George W. Bush, John McCain, Mitt Romney, Ronald Reagan, they were certainly better human beings than Donald Trump, but they didn't understand the nature of the struggle. Uh, they didn't understand that we're in a knife fight. And so there was a feeling in which Trump would do things that in the past they wouldn't have wanted to do, but they were glad he would do it. And then, you know, as, as he won and, and then as he maintained his power, he changed them more than, than any of them changed, um, changed, uh, changed him. But I do think that this idea of, of, of an apocalyptic struggle, an existential struggle is hugely important to understand why the right is acting the way that it does. All excellent points. But speaking of of him changing them more than they changed him, um, there was an interesting little excerpt from one of Steve Bannon's podcasts. And by the way, he's got a huge following. 
where he was saying that, you know, at, in preparation for the next time, uh, that is the next attempt to subvert the election uh, or, or, or hold power, actually this part deals with holding power, he was saying, it might have been Peter Navarro, but I, I think it was Bannon, one of those, said that, well, in, in the first term of Donald Trump, you know, he was surrounded by some rhinos and some people who really weren't on the team um, and uh, who betrayed the great leader. But, um, but that, you know, like Bill Barr uh, and uh, John Bolton, but that won't happen in a second time. They'll all be true blue. And I, I take that absolutely seriously. I, I think they probably will learn that lesson. There won't be any Bill Barr's. Of course, we thought Bill Barr was bad enough, but in the end, he refused to um, go along with stealing the election. But uh, they are in the midst as we speak. It's uh, December 28th, and we are looking at their planning for the next steal. So Peter Navarro has a new book out. And he talks about the plan from January 6th of 2021, where he said, the political and legal beauty of the strategy was, by law, both the House of Representatives and the Senate must spend up to two hours of debate per state on each requested challenge. And then he goes on to how they were going to tie things up with uh, challenge after challenge, and, uh, and then they were going to force the battleground states to revisit the uh, electoral results, plus the crowds outside would force Mike Pence to not certify the election. Um, So that's about as clear cut a description of an attempted coup d'etat as I've seen. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, this is all out in the open. I mean, we can't say that we haven't been warned uh, about right. this. They've signaled it in in every conceivable way. And, and you see it from Steve Bannon to Tucker Carlson, right? I mean, Tucker Carlson is clearly the most influential media figure on the American right. He may be the most influential media figure, period, uh, in this, in this uh, moment. And he had this three-part podcast, which was promoting the idea, giving giving voice to the idea that, that uh, January 6th was a false flag operation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we saw what Donald Trump did, from, you know, from November 3rd, but particularly January 6th on. Um, you know, one of the arguments that, that I'm sure you're familiar with that we heard during the Trump years was that, you know, he was, he said a lot of things that were troubling. His tweets were problematic. But he really didn't control the levers of government, and what what he did was not nearly as bad as what he said. But when you look at what happened, this attempted coup from November third on, they came very very close to pulling this off, much closer than than than, than they should have, for yeah. sure. Uh, and I think closer than a lot of people understood. The January sixth commission, when it does its report, will will let us know that. So we know where where Donald Trump is. We know where his supporters are. We know what they're dedicated to. We know what they are committed uh, to against, which is which is liberal democracy and a, and a kind of decency in in politics. So uh, you know you can't, as I said earlier, you can't not look at that. You can't you can't turn your eyes and hope it disappears. It's not going to disappear. Yeah, and it needs to be confronted. It needs to be resisted. And it it requires some some steel and some some spine. Now, one of the tr- tricks, of course, is given the nature of that threat, which they have broadcast, 
is that those of us who oppose it can't become like them. We can't adopt the same means and methods that they uh, that they do. And there has to be integrity in terms of uh, what we say, how we conduct ourselves, lines that we won't cross. Um, but this is there's a lot at stake. There's there was more at stake, I would say, in American politics today than at any time in my lifetime. Yep. And that's just a lot because uh, because there was a lot at stake. There's there's always a lot at stake in in mm-hmm. uh, in American politics. But that movement, Donald Trump Jr., Steve Bannon, Federalist, you know, website. Uh, American Fox News, greatness, American Fox greatness. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of those things is what the Republican Party has largely become in the American right. And so that needs to, to be counteracted. So there are some good things that have come out of 2021. One of them is the emergence of Liz Cheney as a real giant uh, in in this time, honestly, when we've needed one very badly. And I think she is filling those shoes in a truly impressive fashion. Do, do you agree? Oh, yeah. I think some of her, her statements have been electrifying. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, she strikes me as a, as a kind of Thatcher-like figure. Yep. Um, and those of us who know Liz and have worked with her in the past, that's not a shock. Uh, she, uh, I mean, she was too pro-Trump during the Trump presidency for for for, you, for my taste. Yep, I, f- I felt like she went along with him too often. She didn't speak up often enough. But to her great credit, and I think to her everlasting credit, what happened on November third, especially January sixth, was a line uh, that that was a bright, bold one. And when Trump crossed that she didn't forgive him for it and she won't and she has not backed down she hasn't backed up she does her homework she really anchors her her, her critique in the best of the american tradition and american ideals and the reason i think she's so hated on the american right today is both because she's enormously effective and as i said in some some respects her comments are are kind of electrifying and inspiring to people like you and and me who've been waiting for 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 republicans to to stand up and and to to say this but it's also a sense that she is such a dedicated republican i mean from her family obviously with with her with her father and herself and there's something about having liz cheney stand up and speak these truths to the Republican Party that angers them in a way that if AOC or or Chuck Schumer, if they or Nancy Pelosi, if they did it, it didn't. It doesn't have the same emotional punch because she's been part of the family and she has the courage of of her convictions and she's willing to uh, to speak out. So I think she's a hugely important figure. I think in 2022 she's going to become more important because of the January 6th commission and what it and uh, what it reports. So I'm I'm a huge fan of hers and um you know if if there was an update on profiles and courage uh, the the JFK book she would get uh, she would get a chapter it seems to me. Absolutely. She has shown um, intelligence, she has shown commitment to principle. I agree with you. I, I, I wish she had shown them a little earlier, but she has really stepped up in a truly courageous and inspiring way at a moment when we really do need a bit of leadership and inspiration. So 
Um, and it's just been so lacking, uh, even among former officials, even among people who have nothing to lose, who aren't even facing the voters, but they too are cowed. And uh, it's just been very uninspiring. But what, one quick thing, Mona, that I just want to say about yeah. this, because there's, you know, there, there can be a tendency to, to be despairing about the conditions of American politics. And, and understandably so. I think the stuff that we've talked about is pretty serious. And and for reasons we articulated, this is this is a key moment and a perilous moment. But I do think that it's important that people continue to speak out. In American politics, like in American life, it's very rare that things go on a straight line trajectory. There are all sorts mm -hmm. of contingencies in life. There are inflection points that you can never anticipate. You only see them in retrospect. And all any of us can do in our lives and in American politics is to try and be faithful uh, to what we believe is true and right, not necessarily to be successful, to be, but to be faithful. But there are times in which if people are faithful to, to what is good and true uh, in, in life and in politics, that that can change things. And you don't know when that'll happen. And that's why people can't succumb to despair uh, or, or, to, or to shrug their shoulders or, or to, uh, to give up. A friend of mine once said that you can be a theoretical pessimist, but you ought to be an operational optimist. And that seems to me to be you know, pretty pretty good advice. And I say it in the context of Liz, because we don't know what, what will happen. She may be beaten in a primary. Uh, who knows if her political career is over or not. But she could be a very important figure uh, yes. in, in the history of, of this country and in the, in, when, in the history of this moment. And it may be that what she says makes a difference and it catalyzes some kinds of, of responses. But whether it does or not, she's doing what's right. Um, and that's all that any of us can be asked to, to do uh, with our life. That's uh, beautifully stated. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, we, we absolutely have to always keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep doing what we think is right. And you're absolutely right also that we don't know what the future holds. And uh, there are lots of twists and turns of fate. And there are certainly times in American and world history when things looked incredibly bleak, but turned importantly. So absolutely, we keep, we keep hope alive, as the old expression had it. Let's, let's just mention one or two other quick things that happened, uh, good things that happened in the past year in order to keep this optimistic uh, tone going toward the end of our, our conversation. And let's think about, so I, I don't know if you want to mention anything in particular in the past year. I was struck by American juries doing the right thing in some key cases where I think, you know, there's a some cynicism about how much racial animus there is in the country. I think there is a lot of racial animus in the country, but there's also a lot of goodwill and a lot of people who try to do the right thing. And I think the verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial, the Ahmed Arbery trial, the um, the Kim Potter trial all showed juries, mostly I think white juries, um, coming down the right way in my judgment. Yeah, I think that's right. And I and I, I was glad about that too. And and this has to be said as well, I suppose, to, to broaden the lens a little bit on this, which is the institutions of American democracy held in 2020, 2021, um, including the judiciary. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, Joe Biden was elected. He is president. Whatever you think about him as, as a president, he was the rightful uh, winner, and he and he is in in uh, in office. So the institutions of American democracy held up, and I, I, I suppose it's worth a, a tip of the hat to to the American founders, because they set up the system of government they did for moments like this. Their focus was more on 
presidents who were malicious and destructive rather than than uh, the assumption that you would find great presidents. So the American um, system of government um, stayed in place and the American judiciary came through and so did several others. The other thing I would say just on the hopeful sign are the vaccines that that uh, were created and came to pass really last year but but now they're so widely available now we have the we have the booster shot obviously this is taking place in in a context in which the pandemic has killed many more people than was necessary because the pandemic got caught up in the culture wars and into politics but having said that it is stunning it's a, really a medical miracle that we were able to get those vaccines uh, when we did as quickly as we did, and there are there are real heroes in that story. Francis Collins is a, is a friend of mine. He was director of NIH, National Institutes of Health, for a dozen years, and was one of the key figures in in creating the uh, the vaccines that have saved many millions of lives, not just in this country but worldwide. And even though we're dealing with these variants of, of the pandemic, they're much less lethal than they would be uh, without the vaccines. And that just wouldn't have been possible five or 10 years ago. So the advancements in medical science, the good that medical science can do, um, is a wonderful thing. Um, and it was a wonderful thing. And, and in this case, it came in just the nick of time in the context of the pandemic. We shouldn't lose sight of that. Agreed. And in a couple of columns that I wrote earlier this year where I was recommending that we actually take it upon ourselves with our allies to vaccinate the world, uh, which I wish we had done. But anyway, I did take a moment to um, take a bow for, for the U.S. because you know, a bunch of places develop vaccines. China developed a vaccine. Russia developed a vaccine. The thing about our vaccines was they worked. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> there is that. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so that was a good thing and something to be grateful for. The, another thing that I'm terrifically grateful for is all of the people in this country. You know, the, a lot of our cultural and political leaders are just failing in, in, in fundamental ways to do the right thing. But many other Americans, millions of them are doing the right thing, even at great personal risk. So let me start with all of the medical professionals who during this pandemic have put themselves at risk, especially in the beginning. Remember when they didn't have enough PPE and they didn't have vaccines and they didn't know how the virus spread and they went to work every day and took care of sick people and did their jobs, even if they themselves were vulnerable or they had vulnerable people at home that they were afraid of infecting and on and on. They were incredible. And then all the people who were in frontline jobs, who didn't have the luxury of working at home from a computer and, uh, and who went to work anyway and kept the water running and the, and the electricity going and the food on shelves. And yes, we had spot shortages, but nothing terrible. I mean, everything continued to function. There's a lot of Good, you know, Adam right. Smith famously said, "There's a lot of ruin in a nation. There's also a lot that goes right in our country." Yeah, I think that's really important to keep in in mind. I mean, obviously, because of the world that you and I live in, our occupations, our professions, you know, we we cover American politics. We we look at sort of macro trends, and again, this is important to do, and we have to yeah. name things for what they for what they are. But you're quite right. I mean, there are, uh, and you think about your own life, right? The 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 the, the people in in your own life who have loved you, cared for you, um, helped you walk the journey, particularly in times of grief or in, in hardship. The uh, the acts of kindness that you see uh, 
towards strangers. Uh, like mm-hmm. Some of the things that you talked about, the, the, the medical workers, the self-sacrifice, you know, human beings are a, are a mix of good things and bad things of sort of light and darkness, the human heart's divided against itself. But there uh, are in any given community and neighborhood and family and life, a lot of wonderful things that, uh, that happen that don't get attention, at least don't get national attention, but they happen nonetheless. And they shape our lives. They shape the life of, of a country. And so that's really important to bear in mind as, as we see some of these, uh, you know, these threats and these darker forces that exist. There are also forces of light that, um, that do as, as well. And, um, and that's really key to, to, to keeping in mind because it, it's not only that it, keeps one from falling into sort of pit of despair or giving up or fatalism, but it also happens to be true. I mean, these things are, yes. are happening and there are uh, lives of, of self-sacrifice and virtue um, that are unfolding. People who add, add beauty to our lives and, and goodness. Um, and and uh, in the phrase of the psalmist that lift our eyes to the hills above and, um, and, and we need that. And from time to time, we have to acknowledge that too. That is so beautifully stated, and it is a perfect place to close out. Pete Weiner, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you have a delightful, blessed new year, and look forward to talking with you many more times in the near future. Same here, Mona. You've, you've, been, you've been a great friend and, and as I said, a, a great uh, voice, and I hope you have a, a blessed new year to you and your family. Thank you so much, and thank you all for listening, and we will be back tomorrow and do this all over again.